This week in KMA Land, KMA Land native feels impact of Hurricane Ian. Parkwood subdivision declaration passes on the rebound. More discussion, no action on Montgomery County pipeline regulations. Page County supervisors debate courthouse restroom security, and we'll look back at last weekend's ShenFest parade. I'm Mike Peterson. At least one KMA Land native got a taste of what a hurricane is like this week. Amberly Heslinga Carrington and her husband Jimmy live in Parrish, Florida, which was one of the communities impacted by Hurricane Ian, which slammed into Florida's Gulf Coast Wednesday as a Category 4 storm and cut a disastrous swath through southern and central portions of the state. After preparing their house Monday and Tuesday, Amberly tells KMA News the couple waited and watched television as the storm entered their area. We saw it come on shore and hit the Fort Myers area early morning. And up here, they kept telling us it's going to be hitting your area probably probably around like 6 o'clock at night. But throughout the day, we just heard the wind coming in. We um, saw the, got, got the rain coming in early morning with the rough winds coming in. I and mean, it was like that pretty much all day. So imagine like sitting through like a normal afternoon storm maybe in the Midwest, but for hours. Amberly, a 2007 Shenandoah High School graduate, says they were fortunate the hurricane's path veered away from the Tampa Bay-St. Petersburg area. Except for a few uprooted trees, she says their house escaped heavy damage. We woke up this morning and went and walked around, and we have no damage at all to our house. Our neighbors, we think, have sh- uh, some shingles got taken off of their house. They actually hit our storm shutters last night. That was kind of scary hearing those hit those, those shutters, which I'm very thankful we did put those up because those would have busted out our windows for sure. So we have no damage. Our, our trees are fine. Yeah, no damage here. Amberly says the couple's house is among the thousands of residences not to lose power. It's a different story at Booker High School in Sarasota, where she's an administrative assistant for athletics and volleyball coach. Just south of us in Sarasota, um, they got hit really hard. The high school that I work at, our goalpost got damaged. Our baseball dugouts are damaged. Our press box, football press box is damaged. And she says it's unknown when classes at Brooklyn High will resume as the school also serves as a storm shelter. Having endured their first hurricane, Hamberley says the couple learned some important lessons from Ian. No matter where you are, you can't over-prepare, right? And that's where we're starting to hear stories of, like, the Fort Myers area. They didn't have a lot of time to put to get their house prepped and to evacuate. So, like, hurricanes, like, yeah, you can follow, follow models all you want, but it has a mind of its own, and it will go wherever it wants to go. So, over-preparing is not a bad idea. Amberly asked KMA Land residents to keep residents in South Florida and their thoughts as the region copes with the storm's aftermath. On second thought, plans for a proposed subdivision in Shenandoah received the City Council's blessing after all. By a 3-1 to one vote Tuesday evening, the Council approved the Declaration of Covenants, Conditions, Easements, and Restrictions for the Parkwood Estate Subdivision. Members of the City's Planning and Zoning Board recommended the subdivision's passage back in August, but Council members rejected the resolution at its previous meeting earlier this month. Councilman Richard Jones was among those voting against it at the September 13th meeting, saying he lacked information to make a decision on it. This time, with the subdivision's information made available, Jones voted in favor. There was information in our packets that was specific to the declaration, the covenants and all that. What wasn't there was the 11-page document 
that indicated what the covenants, conditions, restrictions, and easements were, which I've now read and I'm ready to vote. Information of the subdivision was placed in council members' packets prior to Tuesday's council meeting. Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQueen apologized to the council for not providing the materials earlier. I will say that uh, I will uh, take some of the blame for the council not getting all the information that they needed on a couple of motions. So I think we've worked that out, and in the future that shouldn't be a problem again. So I will uh, apologize to them and make sure that uh, to make their job easier, they will get the information they need. Councilman Kim Swank, who also voted against the declaration last time, voted in favor this time around. Councilman John Eric Bratner also voted yes. Councilwoman Tony Graham once again voted against it. Also, by a 3-1 to one vote, the council approved an agreement between the city, Parkwood LLC, and Cornerstone Fellowship Church for the development of a cul-de-sac within a portion of the subdivision property and the church property. Council members Brantner, Graham, and Swank voted yes, while Jones voted no. Continuing drought conditions and future industrial expansion are forcing Shenandoah officials to seek new water sources. At the same regular meeting Tuesday evening, the council approved an agreement between the city and Veenster and Kim for the Fremont Berry Channel Wellfield Exploration Project at a cost not to exceed $65,000. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday morning, Shenandoah City Administrator A.J. Lyman says the city is in need of additional water wells. We, the city, operate, I believe it's about seven shallow wells right now, what are considered shallow wells near the river. Most of our, well, all of our water comes from wells that are not very deep and are filtered groundwater. This would be accessing an aquifer that is buried a lot deeper and has a lot more water supply, less reliant on drought conditions and the like. Lyman says tapping into the channel would provide a city a drought-resistant source of H2O. I know the last couple of years, you know, we've been kind of under or either very close to or just barely into drought in this area. We're trying to find a little bit more of a larger and drought-resistant, I would say, uh, water source. So we're exploring out west of town, trying to trying to locate that. Uh, you know, we're talking about numbers in the 500 to 1,000 gallons per minute uh, type of range per well, whereas our best shallow well gets around 300 gallons per minute. Lyman says the city also needs additional water for the proposed Green Plains Bio Campus project, which includes the addition of a clean sugar facility for producing dextrose and fructose with dry milling. For that same reason, the council approved another agreement with Veenster and Kim for conceptual designs for the city's water treatment expansion project. Deliberations continued in Montgomery County this week on proposed carbon pipeline regulations. During Tuesday morning's County Board of Supervisors meeting, Supervisors Chair Mark Peterson and Supervisor Randy Cooper recapped developments at the most recent Shelby County Planning and Zoning Board meeting. Peterson says approximately 50 people attended the meeting, many of whom speaking against Summit Carbon Solutions' proposed CO2 pipeline planned for a good portion of western Iowa, including Montgomery County. Saying there's unanswered questions regarding the proposed pipeline, Cooper says it's important for the supervisors to work on an ordinance. He cited a proposed ordinance from Wright County specifying the supervisor's responsibilities in protecting the county. The board of supervisors to exercise any power and perform any function it deems appropriate to protect and preserve the rights, privileges, and property of the county of its residents and to preserve and improve the peace, safety, health, welfare, and comfort of our residents. 
I think that's what's important. We need to protect the county, our land, our citizens, and anything we can do will help. Supervisor Mike Olson reiterated that the Iowa Utilities Board, not the county, will make the ultimate decision on the pipeline's fate. He also expressed concerns regarding legal fees associated with any litigation involving the project. Who's going to pay for this litigation that we're going to enter into when Carbon Summit sues us because we have mandated through a, a ordinance something that is undoable? So we end up in court. And this goes on for two or three years, which I think is what they want anyway, is to drag this out as long as they can. Uh, who's going to say that? Supervisor Charlotte Schmidt, however, replied the county shouldn't be afraid of litigation on the issue. Supervisor Donna Robinson stated her support for contacting Allers and Cooney attorney Tim Whipple for possible consultation on pipeline-related matters. Possible security concerns gave Page County officials pause over opening specific courthouse restrooms to the public this week. During its regular meeting Tuesday morning, the Page County Board of Supervisors tabled to reopen the basement restrooms to the general public. While other restrooms have reopened after initially closing as part of the courthouse's COVID-19 mitigation strategy, the basement facilities remain closed. Supervisors Chair Alan Armstrong says the discussion arose after a resident questioned where the reopening was possible. I think it boils back to what we discussed maybe four, three, four years ago. We've got a real security issue down in the basement with that uh, around the ladies' room and access into the building and the possibilities of entering, that is probably one of the biggest items of my concern. More discussion is expected at a future supervisor's meeting. We'll add more in just a moment. After wet, gloomy weather the day before, Shenfest Parade 22 had its day in the sun last Saturday. Shenandoah High School's marching Mustangs in the direction of Dale Risher took its usual position near the front of the traditional fall parade. KMA Land residents lined West Sheridan Avenue on a bright, sunny Saturday afternoon to view a vast array of entries. VIPs included this year's Grand Marshal, retired Shenandoah veterinarian Dr. Gary Connell and his wife Jane. The Connells were humbled by the tribute. It's kind of nice to be honored by the town, even though I don't think I deserve it, but uh, I appreciate it. Jane, what are your thoughts about him being honored like this? I think it's wonderful. Yes, it's been a community's been good to us over the years, and we never would have wanted to live anywhere else. So it's a nice honor. Also sparkling in the sun, Miss Shenandoah Karis Woolsey, along with Little Miss Shenandoah Briley Bowers. For Karis, the parade capped a whirlwind week, which included Shenandoah High School's homecoming celebration. A lot of stress and busyness. I've been on the go for like three days. But it's, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's great. In addition to the parade, Shenfest attendees had other events to choose from, including a big vendor fair in Priest Park, the traditional Shenandoah Fire Department pancake feed, a car show, a tractor show, a tennis tournament, and a fun run and walk, among other activities. It was Roger McQueen's first Shenfest parade as mayor. McQueen says Shenfest is a major attraction luring visitors to town. I look at it, uh, what's going on up at Priest Park right now, uh, the amount of traffic and uh, people I saw downtown 
town earlier, uh, you know, to have seven bands over here and to have a great crowd in town. Uh, I mean, there's there's hardly a place to park. So I, I think it's great anytime we can showcase Shenandoah, but also bring everybody together in kind of a community feel. Some of those visitors were former residents returning for class reunions. David Bermania of Aurora, Illinois, is a 1977 Shenandoah High graduate. Romania says the return home brought back memories of a bygone era. The thing I remember most is the freedom that we had. Uh, we weren't restricted as far as how late we could be out or do things they did because our parents knew that we'd be safe. And Marta Willeman Walters enjoyed catching up with former classmates from the SHS class of 72. It's a really good feeling. You know, we, we all have a lot of shared experiences and you just, it's, you can have conversations without having to Give the background. We just don't, we know the background. Winners of the Shenfest band competition were announced following the parade. Creston took first place honors in the middle school division, followed by Harlan second and Clarinda third. Fremont Mills placed first in the high school division, followed by Stanton in second place. And many of those bands will be in competition at today's Southwest Iowa Band Jamboree in Clarinda. Mills County officials still want more time before formally approving proposed changes to commercial solar application regulations. At its monthly meeting, the Mills County Planning and Zoning Commission heard a presentation from County Building and Zoning Technician Holly Jackson on a proposed final draft of the amended commercial solar ordinance. The presentation came after months of discussion and review from Jackson and the commission, but this was the first time seeing all the items compiled into a proposed amendment. Jackson tells KMA News a new minimum height limit for utility-scale projects is among the proposed changes. The heights that are proposed we're having a height minimum of no less than five feet off the ground and not to exceed 15 foot at the maximum tilt of the solar panels. Jackson previously said the discussion of a minimum height came after some proposals from developers that included dual-use farms and would still potentially utilize the grounds underneath the panels. Also proposed is a 50-foot setback from the end of the right-of-way. However, Jackson adds the commission would like to see that increased. Other discussion points included which zoning districts the projects will be allowed in and how developers would apply, which currently utilizes a conditional use permit. Efforts to continue on a comprehensive study of the Red Oak School District's facilities. During its regular meeting Monday night, the Red Oak School Board heard an update from architect Derek O'Neill with Ali Pointer Machetto Architecture, whom the board selected earlier this year to conduct the survey encompassing current facility needs and the development of a five- to ten-year plan. O'Neill says his group has completed the first round of meetings, which included one with roughly half of the district staff, the other with the district school improvement advisory committee. O'Neill says some key areas rose to the top for all three locations, including Red Oak Early Childhood Development, Inman Elementary, and the Junior Senior High School using the OWN strategy to identify possible opportunities, weaknesses, and needs. Storage across all facilities is a number one, a number one priority. Uh, parking and flow of traffic is also uh, a consistent theme across all of the all of the facilities there also uh, and then another uh, one that rose to the top is related to just safety and security. O'Neill's safety topics range from a safety plan and an active shooter scenario to additional tornado shelter space similar to the board's current views of the space situation in Inman that prompted the leasing of a portable classroom unit O'Neill says the staff and SIAC groups identified multiple opportunities for additional space. At Inman, 
kind of a general dislike of the portable solution, understanding why it's there, but getting that incorporated into a long-term solution, secure entry, heating and cooling, the cafeteria size, um, music room and special education. He adds two student representatives spoke at the SIAC meeting about traffic flow between classes, locker rooms, and overall logistics for students within each building. Among other things, O'Neill says a consistent topic brought up at the junior-senior high school building is more areas to promote student success. Lorenda officials are beginning the process of identifying capital projects for the next fiscal year and beyond. Meeting in regular session Wednesday, the Clarinda City Council held its first of what is expected to be multiple capital projects planning workshops. The council holds the workshops every year in preparation for the next fiscal year's budget to identify and prioritize improvement projects throughout the community. City Manager Gary McLarnon started by reviewing projects completed in fiscal year 2022, which ended June 30th. McLarnon says the city continued construction of its new wastewater treatment facility, completed multiple street overlays, a taxiway project at the airport, new carpeting at the library, and water and sewer infrastructure upgrades for a total of seven. $0.5 million in improvements. I really, really think that for a city our size, that's 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 pretty darn good. Um, that does show people that we are actually making some progress and doing some things, and and not and not raising the tax levy um, with all these projects that we did. So I think that that really says a lot about uh, about our city and what we're doing as far as improvements. In the current fiscal year, city officials have around $4.9 million in improvements slated, including the finishing of the wastewater treatment facility and the recently completed overlay on Glen Miller Avenue. For fiscal year 2024, which begins July 1st, 2023, McLaren says the city has a number of projects planned. Hey, 7th Street from Garfield Street to Stewart Street. You remember I ate, uh, John Lyle had come and asked for us to do that. Um, I did get some prices on it, so I did put go ahead and put that in here for next fiscal year, complete that project. Purchase snowplow truck, that's something that we had uh, put on last year and, and uh, would like to be able to do that next year. Update the airport uh, layout plan um, and then the environmental review with the airport as well. Those will be paid for 90% by the FAA and then local match at 10%. Other projects on tap for the 2024 fiscal year include a water quality improvement project for $1.2 million. Clarinda school officials are back providing academic assistance to multiple homeschool students. Meeting in regular session Wednesday evening, the Clarinda School Board approved a teacher contract for Lexi Davies to serve as a homeschool assistant to several students currently enrolled in the competent private instruction. Clarinda Superintendent Jeff Privia says 19 students residing within the district are presently enrolled in CPI, while two are enrolled in independent private instruction. He says a homeschool assistance program is one of the ways the Iowa Department of Education allows CPI students to receive instruction. Privia says 11 CPI students have expressed interest in the assistance program. Per the Iowa Department of Education, CPI requires instruction to be provided daily for at least 148 days during a school year and 37 days each quarter by either a certified instructor, parent, guardian, or custodian. That wraps up this week at KMA. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. 
And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com. You can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.